The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the Crowdmakers, inside the C-suite of sports and entertainment. The definitive podcast on the inner workings of the business side of professional sports, concerts, and live events. These are the people that are shaping the new landscape of the industry, the executives that are creating the new paradigm for live entertainment. These are the inside conversations you won't hear anywhere else. These are the Crowdmakers. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the digital training network that uses micro-learning and spaced repetition to form new habits of success in sales, service, leadership, and more. Created by sports and entertainment industry experts for the industry. Learn more at ISBI360.com. I'm Bill Gertine, and I am joined and by now, Tom Gertine. Here's your host he for the Crowdmakers, Commissioner Bill Gertine. Of the USHL, the United States Hockey League, and I'm grateful for you to take the time to speak with us, Tom. Thanks for being here. Hey, I'm glad to see or glad to talk to you again and see you, I guess. Oh, we're kind of seeing Thank you. Thank you. It is a, a, we're using a visual medium, but it's an audio yeah. program. But so let's talk a little bit about that. You've probably done a whole lot more of this visual medium lately. What have you been doing during this whole pandemic that you would say was bettering yourself? Are you reading a particular book, some kind of a routine you're in? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of Zoom calls, definitely. A lot of, you know, that's the new norm. And um, I've spent a lot of time. Uh, good and bad, trying to learn as much as I can about uh, this pandemic and, you know, really paying a lot of attention to, uh, it's funny, I became a big proponent of LinkedIn recently. I've always been on it, but I've really gotten a lot of really good information that people are sharing related to our industry and how people are handling everything from management of their staffs to creative ideas of staying relevant and fan engagement, things like that. So, Zoom, LinkedIn, a lot of reading, not necessarily books, but just more, you know, the news to find out what's going on, talking to a lot of people in the industry that have similar positions in hockey in particular, from college hockey commissioners to the Canadian Hockey League and their commissioners and the National Hockey League. So just trying to learn as much as I can, and I, I still don't have any answers. <laughs> like everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Well, for the USHL, many people may not be familiar with that. Perhaps everyone on the podcast would not know it by its initials. So if you could give us a little bit of a brief history of the league and its place in pro sports. Yeah, so it's um, the top. It's the only, uh, only tier one top junior league in the United States. Um, our athletes are 16 to 20 years old. Um, their next uh, step in their evolution of hockey would be to go on to college hockey. 98% uh, of our kids end up going Division One. Um, it's a big, it's a big time league. We're very proud of it. Had over almost 60 kids drafted in the NHL last year, so it's just a different option compared to Major Junior in some ways, where the athletes coming in, they're you know they're they're playing um, 60 plus games, and then their their next step would be college hockey. 16, we have 16 franchises. Um, the national development team is one of our uh, leagues, or excuse me, is one of our franchises. So they they have a split, they have a split squad. So we have uh, the 17 and 18 team, 
And um, we range from as far east as Youngstown, Ohio, to as far west as Kearney, Nebraska. And then we pretty much go from Fargo right down through Chicago. So predominantly a Midwest league. It's been in existence for decades. And we've been really fortunate that um, every year we seem to just be getting better and better. That's great. Well, you as the commissioner may be the only one I know that's actually had an ownership position in one of the teams when you took over in 2017. Now, I understand that you have since sold your stake in that team, but how valuable is that kind of experience to be an owner and now a commissioner? Yeah, it's been really helpful. It's been really helpful in the sense that when I took over as the commissioner, I started on an interim, I started on an interim basis until um, um, they couldn't find anybody else. So they just said, what the heck, why don't you do it? Uh, but at least from an ownership perspective, I can understand um, to a degree, I can understand, you know, kind of the ebbs and flows of, of uh, owner's mind. I understand the, the concerns that they have from um, every element of the business. And I think I can relate pretty clearly with them when they have a concern. Um, so, and I've also been fortunate during that time prior to me taking over, um, had the good fortune of getting to know all these guys. So when we yell at each other, it's not personal. <laughs> That's a good thing. So they can, yeah. uh, they almost, you could be a peer rather than simply someone who may or may not have been in their shoes. I'm sure that's valuable. Yeah, I don't know if they'd consider me a peer, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> I like the way you put it. <laughs> when you started Quan Sports back in 2008, which is a sports marketing and consulting firm. So you're no, you're no stranger to entrepreneurs. Take us through the start of that company when you started it back in 08. What, what led you to hang out your own shingle at that time? Yeah, it was interesting because I had a really, a really fun job with one of my favorite uh, organizations in the whole wide world, and it still is. I was working, with, working for the Minnesota Wild, and I had a pretty, pretty cool job. You know, people I worked with were awesome, and, you know, but I always wanted to do my own thing. And Matt Maka, who's a mentor of mine, um, you know, who's the CEO and president of the Wild now, you know, he and I had always chatted during our weekly one-on-ones and I told him I really wanted to start my own business. And then I had the good fortune of running into Scott O'Neill and the Teambo guys. And they, uh, they offered me an opportunity to come on board and focus on the WNBA, which I was happy to do in particular with the Houston Comets because I had spent time in Houston during my wild days because that's where their farm team was. So knew the market, was really impressed by the NBA and got to be, I was really lucky to get able to get behind the curtain a little bit and learn a ton. And it really launched my company. And the purpose of the company was I really wanted to get in to work with uh, communities and projects. You know, I want to make money, but it was, it was kind of like Quan out of the movie. It was about community and love and respect. And basically, if you, if you do all those things, the money comes. I mean, that's what I'm still hoping for. It still hasn't showed up, but I try to, I try to live that every day. But I really wanted to get in, in part of things that needed help and that maybe I could help and add some, some value to it. Well, then fast forward a little bit. 2012, you became co-owner, CEO, and president of the Sioux Falls Stampede hockey team yeah. and the Sioux Falls Canaries baseball team. What was behind yeah. the move to become so involved in those teams at that time? Well, I was lucky. I was doing some consulting with the, um, the Arizona Coyotes and, and – um, during my wild days, Bob Nagley III, his father, Jr., um, they own the wild. And so they contacted me and said, hey, um, we're looking to buy a baseball team and a, and a hockey team. Would you want to get involved with us? But we need someone who can then basically come in and do the day-to-day. -day. 
and I had been traveling a lot. I live in the Twin Cities, so I was traveling a lot back and forth between Arizona. I have a relatively young family, and I wanted to spend more time with them. And so when they said, um, they said, you got to move to the city, though. And they kind of hesitated. And I'm like, well, what's the city? And they said, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I think they thought that would be a deal breaker. And Sioux, I mean, trust me, it's a great city. And the best part is my wife's from there. So I said, oh, hey, you're kidding me. Yeah, I'll move to Sioux Falls for a year for sure. And so we've been involved ever since. I'm still part owner of the baseball team there. And um, we love the city and it, it turned out to be a wonderful thing for everybody. That's great. How has your involvement in baseball, because it's very different in some ways and very similar in others. How has knowing baseball improved the way you look at hockey? Well, the biggest thing is like, you know, it's funny when um, I actually cut my teeth in baseball with the Astros and I was there for a little bit. And so I had a little bit of a running head start, but I remember when I first started working with the Astros, I remember looking, I think we have a mutual friend, mutual friend and Bill Gorin. Oh, God. Yeah. Unbelievable dude. And, and so we were sitting during one of the homestands and I just could not get over the fact that it just game after game, after game, after game. And I wasn't used to the pace, even with hockey and it's 40 games. And now we have a league that we play 30, 60, 30 and 30, the 80 plus games was really a drag on me. And so getting into our league now, we have 50 games at home and 50 away. Um, it's a little bit shortened this year because of the pandemic, but it really helped me with the pace. It really helped me with understanding how to kind of get navigate through home stands promotionally and group ticket wise and ticketing wise. It really helped me just understand that it's, and I say this with love, but it's a grind and you really have to pace yourself or you burn out pretty quickly. Yes, you do. How about on the creativity side? Was there something in baseball that you thought perhaps hockey could use a little bit more of? Perhaps on the ticket sales side, on the game uh, experience side? What, what did you take from baseball that you've been able to incorporate in hockey? Yeah, I mean, promotionally, I mean, I think when you look at really creative people around the industry, you know, minor league baseball in particular is always really looked at from a, from a very high level, the Mike Becks of the world and, um, I believe is the guy from the Savannah Bananas is a Jess Cole. Jesse Cole, yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you look at those guys and they really got a they really got a different speed to them, and they do some really fun things. And I think you know, um, coming from Major League Sports, where sometimes it's more about the product, which it, which it should be, and they 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 tend to steer away from anything maybe they view as being controversial or a little bit of a crossing the line. You know, the minor league baseball stuff when done appropriately, um, really can it really can roll over to hockey. Because again, in, in our situation, the fans are really coming there. Yeah, they want us to win, but they want affordability. They want fun. They want to be able to bring their families out. They love to see all the things that go along with it. It's an event. It's like a two or three hour event that they can walk away and win, lose, or draw. They've spent a really nice night together. And I think you can learn a lot from baseball and in particular minor league baseball. So to go back to September 2019, you start your season, you were going to go through mid-April, your teams were playing in mid-March as the virus was starting to shut everything down everywhere. Give us a window of what was going on in your role as commissioner during that month of March. When did you first begin to talk to your teams about the potential for a shutdown and how did it all unfold for you? Yeah, it was really surreal. So I had the good fortune of being invited to this NHL summit on diversity and inclusion down in Boca Raton. 
And so we had all the leagues from all the North America predominantly. So American Hockey League, East Coast League, the NHL was there and their staff. And then we had the Canadian Hockey Leagues and all their major junior teams. So very, very nice room. A lot of people involved. NHL had Gary Bettman, Bill Daly there. Very important summit. And it was really worthwhile. It was great. And then, but during that time, maybe a week or two before, you know, well, even longer than that, maybe a month earlier, we started really like, what's going on with this thing, right? It first showed up on Washington State. And we started thinking like, what's going on? And even at that time, we were all collectively like, well, let's just see what happens. And we, no one had a lot of information. Um, and I think we were all just kind of like, oh, well, you know, not oh well, I mean, we were keeping an eye on it, but we weren't thinking about canceling our seasons and postponing, you know, things. And I think it was, so my family flew down for spring break and that was on a Wednesday, Thursday. By Saturday, I was on the phone with our board of directors um, after the NBA made their move, which, you know, they're, you know, arguably the best league in the world when it comes to pretty much everything. And, um, and I have a lot of respect for the NHL too, I want to say that, and all the other leagues, NFL, et cetera. But, um, but they're really, you know, sharp. And so as they, as they kind of laid that out, then I think within a uh, you know, we had probably another 48 hours, we had gotten to the point of thinking and looking at it to canceling the remainder of our season and playoffs. So it was a really, really um, surreal time. But our owners, which I was really proud of at the time, our owners didn't worry about money. They didn't worry about, you know, all this and all that. Everybody was united and making sure everybody was safe and healthy and very scary times. And I was really proud to be a part of the league and to see how they responded to what they needed to do. In your position as commissioner, how much was expected of you during this time? And, and perhaps what feelings were washing over you as it made really, it was almost a foregone conclusion that you didn't have all the answers. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, to this day, I don't have all the answers. I mean, again, if they're looking for someone with all the answers, they, they swung and missed on the hire. Um, but really fortunate, we have a really good staff, um, really great league office, and we have a lot of really good owners. Um, it's been a very collaborative effort. Um, so, you know, I've got a, an executive committee that I work with on a daily basis, really good individuals that run teams in our league that have wonderful insight and direction. And so um, even though we still don't have all the answers and we're kind of day-to-day on it, um, at least the decisions that we are making is collaborative and we're, we're thinking of things together. And um, I think that's really helped. That's really, really helped the situation. We're still, we still got a long way to go because we, we're still waiting to see what happens, but we're learning more and more every day. And at least we're all in it together and we'll end up making the right decision to keep everybody safe. Great. Well, people in a leadership position like yours have been forced into making some decisions based on very little conclusive information. And sometimes they're hits and sometimes they're misses. What is an example of a miss or a, perhaps a mistake that you may have made early on in the pandemic? And what did you learn from? Um, God, that's a really good question. I'm sure we made plenty of mistakes. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, from a, from a league perspective, um, we probably could have been more um, proactive in helping our franchises through the initial couple months. Um, you know, we did best practice calls. We had our presidents on our calls, but there was a lot of things related to the different federal grants and state situations. And, and I think um, 
we were a little bit in a state of shock. And so I think, you know, we could have definitely been more proactive. We finally got out of the way, or got out of our way and started, you know, kind of putting a checklist together. Okay, what's important now? What's important? What's important? The staff, how do you guys keep going? Um, how do we keep engaged? So I think out of the gate, we weren't, I wasn't, I'm responsible. I wasn't as prepared as I probably should have been. Well, I don't think anybody's faulting you for this. And nobody had the playbook for this. And we're all still writing as we go, as we've already pointed out. But uh, appreciate your transparency on that. Yeah. We'll be back for the second half right after this. Hi, this is Bill Gertine. I've been training the ticket sales departments of sports and entertainment for almost 20 years. And I love what I do. But everywhere I went, the story was always the same. We loved what you did. You got us fired up. But after a while, we kind of lost the spark and we went back to the same old, same old. Well, not anymore. ISBI 360 is the first and only digital training network created exclusively for the specific long-term career needs of sports and entertainment professionals. Our seven different unique certification programs include the fundamentals of success in the industry, like ticket sales, sponsorships, social media, customer service, and leadership all trained by industry experts like Brett Zelaski, Debbie Nolan, Misha Scher, and Seth Rabinowitz. ISBI 360 uses a unique four-stage learning process, including cutting-edge micro-learning videos, live recorded role plays, live coaching from industry experts, and an ongoing reinforcement program to make sure the learning sticks and forms the habits that your people need to grow and excel faster. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Check out what's different about ISBI 360 today. Within the USHL, it's a very unique amateur player roster, much different than, say, the pros. What sort of added precautions have you had to adhere with these younger 16 to 20-year-olds as opposed to the pros? Yeah, that's a really good question. We're still working on that. So we're not really there yet. So I, I, I guess I'm going to be careful on what we're discussing just for pure um, not knowing the full information yet. But I think, um, you know, obviously that's, that's something we have to look at and, and um, we have to be aware of as we move forward. You say you're in touch with all of the schools and some of those Division I teams. Uh, the school's protocols and the things that are happening around the country how does that affect you as a lead? Um, I think we le we're learning a lot from it. You know, I think sometimes it's good and bad, you know, in the sense of um, it does seem like, um, and I, and I say this again with a lot of respect, I do, even though it's going to maybe come across not that way, but it just seems like when someone makes a decision, then everyone starts to follow it. And um, I'm not saying that's wrong, you know, based on the point of how it began the whole thing. But again, it's interesting with this whole football thing. You know, you saw the MAC conference did it, and then Big Ten followed, and Pac-12. And I'm not saying those are wrong decisions at all. But then now you have the SEC and some other schools that are not doing it. Um, so, to your question, um, you know, we're learning, like college hockey in particular. There are still some 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 uh, conferences that still haven't made their decision yet, um, as far as when they're going to try to play. A lot of it's dictated by the universities. Um, so we're kind of along the ride with them a little bit just to see what they're doing, how they're handling things, why they're making the decisions they are making, and then what can we learn from them um, to make sure that when we do decide to play, um, we're doing everything possible to keep everybody 
fans, et cetera, players, et cetera, staff and so forth um, as safe as we can. And if that's even feasible to do. A lot of teams within sports of all kinds have had to either furlough or lay off a lot of their personnel. Bring us through what your teams have chosen to do over these last several months and, and what you're talking about doing as a league with individual teams going forward as far as personnel. Yeah, we, we, we did unfortunately have some uh, staff members from some various teams uh, furloughed. Um, the thing again that I was very positive on with our league is the owners, um, I think have retained an enormous amount of their staff. Um, you know, they look at this as, you know, we are in a situation where we will eventually go back and play and they understand the importance of staff and they understand the importance of front office and hockey operations. Um, you know, so I think as we're navigating the next month or two months, um, if we can go back to play, when we go back to play, um, the league, I think, really understands that they need a staff and a good staff. You, you know, good people are hard to find, as you know. And when you get them, you got to keep them there. And so I've been pretty pleased with, um, you know, the level of furloughs have, have been there, but not not nearly as much as I was anticipating. And I think, you know, as we if we can, when and if we get back in playing, um, you know, I think that will really show in how these businesses are being run. Amen. In a lot of ways. Very good. You went to school in Platteville, Wisconsin. You got a business degree. <laughs> Don't know whether or not it was really sports oriented at the time, but that's where the Chicago Bears trained in the summers yeah. of 1984 through 2010. Yeah. I'm you were there in those years. Yep. Yep. Uh, were you involved in training camp at all during your time there? And did it have any impact on you wanting to be involved in sports? Yeah, you know, I did. I went to Platteville and, and um, I, um, I was involved in training camp. I, was, I worked at training camp the year after they won the Super Bowl. And it was quite the experience. I could write a book about it. Um, it was right on the cusp of then, uh, lacrosse, you know, it was like the cheese league, they called it, if you remember that. But the Saints were in lacrosse and the Jacksonville Jaguars in Stevens Point. The Chiefs were in River Falls. We had the Bears. Um, so it was really, really crazy. It was super fun. I had a buddy of mine that had graduated before me that actually was an unsigned uh, uh, free agent that was trying not to make the bears. And, um, so it was a great time. We had a blast. Um, you know, I was a grunt. I was just running around doing whatever they told me to do. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I always, I always had, I mean, my major wasn't anything focused on sports, but that definitely along with just the love of the, of sports in general, definitely in, encouraged me to try to get into the business. As you see young people coming out of school now with sport management degrees, do you see anything that they should be teaching more of in their programs to better prepare them for the jobs that are in sports today that maybe they're not getting enough of today, in your opinion? Well, yeah. I mean, for me personally, I, you know, there's a lot of really, really smart people coming out. Trust me, if I was competing against those people back in the day, I would, I'd be, you wouldn't be talking to me right now. I'd be doing something else. But, um, you know, the biggest thing for me is um, interpersonal people skills. I think that we, there's a lot of, the thing that I've always said to everybody, and I know with technology and all the new things that are going on, um, those are super important and we get smarter and smarter and analytics and all those things. But every single organization that's successful has great people and you have to have a good culture. And I talk about culture all the time and it's organic. You can't create culture. Culture is developed by the people that are a part of it. 
And I think now with the, you know, the array of uh, different folks coming out, you know, diversity is really, really important. Inclusion is really, really important. Um, having people understand that when they get into the business. So from a collegiate aspect coming out, what I would be, what I tell people when they talk to me is that it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And I always say, are you, are you looking for a job or are you looking for a career? There's a difference. And so if you're in it for a job, it probably is not going to play out for you. But if you're looking for a career, you know, get in, learn, be humble, listen, pay attention, develop people skills. And um, also, I always tell people, learn how to sell. Because no matter what you're doing in this business, you're selling something. You're preaching to the choir here. That's <laughs> I thought you might like that. I threw that out there for you. <laughs> Glad you did. That's good. That last line. That's important. Yeah. So as someone becomes commissioner, there are so many things that you would have to do in addition to having all of those roles that you play at the Canaries. Anything that you do to keep yourself organized, some personal routines, some things that you would recommend to others that are struggling with time management? Yeah, I got a weird personality. So I'm a, um, I, I get up early. I, 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 you know, and again, I want to say this carefully because everyone works hard. I, one of the things I'm not happy with my life is I just kind of never sh shut off. And that's not to try to say, oh, my God, I'm the hardest worker in the world. But I have a personality like that where, you know, um, you need to shut it off and kind of recharge and, and do that. But, like, I'm a big proponent of exercise and, you know, making sure that you kind of clear your mind and do some things like that as far as, you know, my day and my routine. Um, I'm a big fan of getting up early and kind of cleaning out my distractions before the day starts so I can focus on my day and the things that I need to do. I make a list every day of the five things that I have to do uh, and make sure that those are accomplished by the end of the day. And I'm also a big proponent of, you know, responding to people within 24 hours, whether it's email, text, or a phone message. Um, it just makes me feel more organized and on top of things. And, and I've also learned how to delegate better. Um, I, I, you know, again, back to the culture and people, um, I've learned how, you know, you hire people that are literally better at things than you are and don't be intimidated by it and then just give them full reign to get going on it. And, you know, people will, you know, I think excel in that environment and it's really helped me with my organization and my ability to get more done. Yeah. Great advice for those people who are trying to figure it out themselves. I think that five, those five things to do every day is probably, in my opinion, one of the more strong things you just said right there. So that's awesome. Yeah. So you say you're a voracious reader of all things that are news and information, mainly online. When you think of a company or an individual that you're reading about that you think has pivoted really well during this time in history, is there somebody or some company that comes to mind for you? Uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I'm super um, folk. I mean, I'm super one dimensional. I mean, it's pretty much all sports. Um, you know, my wife always gives me grief that, you know, I can memorize, you know, all this stuff was, you know, every sport thing in the world, but I can't, you know, pick up groceries that she asked me to do. So anyway, I like to refer to that as a little bit of a rain man complex, but maybe I'm patting myself on the back. But um, um, I mean, again, I'm a big fan of like, um, I was really impressed. I was really impressed by the leagues. So I was really impressed by um, Gary Bettman and Bill Daly. And I was really impressed by Adam uh, Silver and I think the way that they've handled at least the bubble and what they've done with these games and how they looked at things and did things, um, I, you know, 
I've had the good fortune of sitting in on some phone calls um, with the NHL and the, to kind of watch how they took the time and, and the effort to just learn and pay attention and put their egos aside and their humility and just, you know, focus on getting the game back. And then when the game did get back, that I think it's really been a success, at least my opinion, both the NBA and the NHL. Now, again, I think Major League Baseball has done a good job too. You know, they've got kind of a different setup, but at least to your question, I've been very impressed by Gary Bettman and Bill Daly. And I've been, well, and also I've been very impressed by Pat Kelleher of USA Hockey and watching how they're taking all the things that are throwing at them and, and the work that they've done to get hockey back up and running. Within sports, you've seen this for a long time. You've been involved in the industry for quite a while. What do you think this unique situation has given sports an opportunity to do or maybe to be that may never come again? Is there a window of opportunity that you think is right now to change or improve something? Well, yeah. I mean, again, I think, you know, just from a service perspective, you know, um, from a I think it's really challenging people to look at because I think things are going to be different for quite a while, maybe forever. I don't know. But when I look at, you know, the way people interact with people, the way people are now engaging with people, um, the way that people are going to have to engage with their fans when they start coming back to live events, um, the way, you know, they're going to have to understand service and understand, you know, all sorts of things that are going to be completely different to the way we think of things. I think there's enormous opportunity to be the leader in that and to um, um, understand that moving forward, the dynamic has definitely changed. All right. So this is the part where I give you a rapid fire question. You just have to fill in the blanks. The first thing that comes to your head when I ask them, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Favorite car to drive if money was no object? Uh, um, rapid fire has never been a skill set of mine. Um, uh, uh, my truck. I like my truck. Sorry. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, favorite binge watching during the pandemic? Um, Ozark. Excellent. Yeah, place Ozark. You, place you would love to go out to eat and sit down like you used to at a restaurant and the first place you're going to go when the pandemic is over. I would go to uh, a place in my hometown called um, Jones's. And that is in what town? Verity Sheen, Wisconsin. There you go. So it's like an old school steakhouse. Great. Number one vacation spot you're going to go when all this is over? Mexico. <laughs> Probably Cabo. I like, I like Mexico. I'm a big fan of Mexico. Very good. And then one bold prediction that you would have for sports going forward. I don't think it's a bold prediction. It's more of a something that I've even learned and this relates to you and I and what, you know, what our, your background is and my background is, as I think actually at least in the next year or two years, maybe even longer, um, we're going to have to figure out a different way to sell groups. I think group sales are going to be at least for the next year. I think um, what we've seen this year in baseball is a little surprised. I guess I shouldn't have been. It makes sense. But large corporations are going to be a little bit more apprehensive of, you know, perhaps sponsoring groups and, and even then trying to get, super groups out and links and all those things. There's, there's some semblance of concern over, you know, liability and concerns for health and things of that nature. So maybe it's not the sexiest thing in the world, but I think moving forward, at least in the next year or two, I think teams are going to have to look at the way they try to get 
group, so to speak, back into the building and that there's going to have to be more emphasis on season ticket packages and single game sales. Any ideas as to what to do with that group sales dilemma? Because I've heard that and I'm glad that you brought that up here. You know, the, the idea of a group outing uh, really runs against the grain of the social distancing guidelines. Yeah, you know, what we've tried to do in baseball, and we've really struggled. So I may, not, might not be the, the right person, but we're looking into it. Again, I think a lot of it has to do with messaging. But ultimately, again, you know, letting people know that you're doing these things. So whether it's, you know, using um, content, social media, your, 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 your digital, um, your, you know, the different assets that you have to promote your events, I think that people are going to have to really start showing people that it's a safe environment or, you know, safer environment. I think when you look at the groups, you're going to have to really start to, you know, show people that it's a section that, you know, it is spread out, almost a map of, hey, this is how they're going to sit. These are the things we're doing to do this, you know, for their, you know, safety and things of that nature. But the thing I still don't have an answer for is when companies are just con concerned about doing it. And I think at least in the foreseeable future, I think until there's a vaccine or until there's some type of treatment or something, um, it's going to be a challenge. You know, now maybe more focus on super groups where you're getting people coming from different walks of life that don't have any affinity with each other, other than the fact that they're a part of an association or some type of a thing. Um, you might have to pivot there. The other thing that we've tried to do, which is interesting, the one area that we've started to have more success with were tradition groups that we've done before in the past that we didn't do a lot of work with, oddly enough, we've never had a ton of success with bars and restaurants because of the staff and weekends and stuff, they're kind of competing with each other, retail, big box stores, things of that nature. We're going after groups of people that are dealing with the public every day. And they're, they're, you know, they're out, they're in the trenches, so to speak, they're dealing with people day to day. And we are having some more success with those, with those types of places because, um, you know, they're, they're dealing with, they're dealing with it with themselves. You know, they're dealing with customers and I think they have a little less concern, but the big thing is, and I want to emphasize this is we are focusing more of our attention now to let them know that it's almost like, here's your plan. Here's your seating chart. Here's the things that we're doing to make sure when you show up, whether it's mask, you know, contactless concessions, merchandise, all the things that all these other teams are doing. Um, we just have to promote that more. Yeah. Well, it's a great beginning on a way forward, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about that for at least a few more years to come. But I want to thank you for your time and for your information on this. It's very enlightening. Tom Garrity, President and Commissioner of the United States Hockey League. Thank you so much for being a guest here on The Crowd. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed the program, please like us, share us with those you know, and hit subscribe on the podcast, and we'll let you know when another new episode is dropped. Your positive comments will help keep the Crowdmakers on the air. We'd be grateful for your five-star review. Got someone you'd like to hear as a guest on the Crowdmakers? Let us know, and we'll do our best to reach out to them. Drop us a note at info at isbi360.com. That's info at isbi360.com. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the first and only digital training network for sports and entertainment professionals. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Our chief engineer of the Crowdmakers is Ken Marinelli. Sean Quinn is our director of operations. Mark Yazowitz is the digital platform guru. 
and the executive producer of The Crowdmakers is Doug Quinn. I'm Bill Gertine. Until next time, thanks for listening, and so long for now. This is The Crowdmakers on the C-Suite Radio Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.